Oh, and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. I'm Creston. And tonight we talk about Ruby Fibers, not just for digestion anymore. Um, so this Ruby Fibers aren't a new thing, but uh, they're getting more and more use lately since Ruby 3. I understand. I don't mess with them much, so Guru over here is going to teach us. But before we get into all that fun stuff, how was your week? Well, I should say I am not a guru on this stuff because I had to research it. It's just basically this different stuff that came out with Ruby 3. I'm like, all right, I'm going to spend some time to kind of know it, understand what it is, what the implications are, the impact. So that's why I'm kind of co been covering the different stuff with Ruby 3. Yep. So I'll just impart what I've discovered. So in terms of this week, it's basically same old, same old Rails consulting, PostgreSQL database consulting and working on my product. <laughs> so that's pretty much it. Um, I found some interesting things out with regard to Ruby that I'm act that I actually put in the tail end of the presentation. So something I discovered. So stay tuned till after the fibers if you want to learn more about that. Uh, the but I will say in some of my consulting, one nugget that I will present in case people or have encountered this, but when you're running the Postgres database and you're doing inserts, a lot of people have tons of sidekick jobs that try to insert data into the database. And sometimes you run into, and maybe you'll call it a race condition, but you can easily handle it because like sidekick jobs recover from failure where you're trying to do an insert of a value into a table. And you may have multiple workers that are trying to insert the same value and you get a, a constraint violation. Like maybe you only want a particular unique value in the database and you get an error, a unique constraint violation. Well, that of course gets logged. Now actually, sometimes if these go rogue, you can have your log filling up quite quickly with all of these messages. But there is a way that you can handle them without logging, and it actually doesn't impact a lot of wall writes, the write-ahead log, and, and other methods. And that is by simply adding the clause, on conflict, do nothing. So a lot of people use on conflict, do update. So they try to insert something. If it fails, do the update. But if you want it to have a failure state, you can simply say, well, do nothing. And in that case, it's not going to log anything. And it also saves on logging things to uh, the right ahead log in some different places. So just a little nugget that I thought I'd share with the show nice. that if you're running into these types of things, maybe consider doing that. Cool. So how was your week um it was it was actually pretty good so this the big project that i spent all that time upgrading to 3.0 and going through the double splat conundrum um i got that all worked out and once all the tests were passing for 3.0 i said okay let's go to 3.1 now so i upgraded to 3.1.2 and that was surprisingly easy um, I had to update a couple of gems. Now we're still on Rails six. 
so we have to upgrade that, but we wanted to get the Ruby updated first. So there were a couple of gems that needed up upgrading, but not very many. Um, there was, I had to add a net HTTP gem uh, because we're not at rail seven yet. So it's kind of a temporary gem. And once I did those things, I ran my test suite and I only had one test fail. And the reason it failed is because it, it, it was a test for an error message that included the uh, source URL. And in the case of the test, that source URL was localhost. Well, apparently, I think this has to do with that net HTTP. It, instead of logging localhost, the word localhost, it logged the actual loopback IP address. And mm -hmm. so that test failed because it was looking for the word localhost. So, um, you know, we, we looked at the test and said, well, okay, we don't, we don't really care whether it says localhost or 127.0.0.1. Uh, so I really didn't have any failures upgrading to, to Ruby 3.1. Um, so it, you know, that whole process took me about two and a half hours, 20 minutes of which was running through tests. That's always nice. Yeah. So, um, so that was a, that was a nice surprise. Um, cause I upgraded, I did a test upgrade to 3.1.2. And tried to and ran my tests and I had a bunch of failures. So I don't know what was going. Maybe some of my gem gems, one of the gems somewhere is out of date. And I'm like, eh, I ain't got time to deal with this right now. So Yeah, well, until I updated those gems, I, I had massive amounts of failures, but you know, that's because And this was a a month or two ago. So, you know, yeah. Maybe some people have released some updates to fix things. Yeah. Yeah. So but yeah, it was it was only a uh, a very few gems and we use quite a few more than I'd really would like to see, but still um, it was a very few gems that I had to actually update. So that was really nice. Um, and then there's a lot of, I, I was doing a lot of log diving and investigation to try to find, um, try to uncover the source of a latency issue that popped up in one of our products and, and see if I could figure out what, that was all about and it turns out that we're going to have to do some refactoring it's it's a thing that it didn't just pop up it kind of grew up over months and months and months of changes many versions of stuff um but there are we've identified some things where we might be able to uh, make some improvements but it's not it there are far-reaching consequences possibly so we have to be a little careful where we tread because it's in a bit of a core area so we have to kind of treat it as a refactor project rather than just, oh, let's just change this. Because that could be extraordinarily bad. <laughs> so um, anyway, that's been most of my exciting week, other than administrative goop. All right. So Ruby Fibers, let's talk about those. All right. Go and go to the next one and go ahead and hit it. So I actually didn't know it was this far back, but they were released in Ruby 1.9, which is quite a number of years ago. And not quite sure why they were implemented. And because by fibers, you get, okay, you can have multiple fibers per thread, essentially, I think is why they kind of called them fibers. 
but they're really kind of a different animal than threads. Um, so, you know, when you're running a process, you have, you know, one thread running and you can choose to spawn more threads. Um, well, with a fiber, essentially you have one fiber running anytime within a, within a thread and you can create more fibers, but basically the programmer has control as to when they run. Right. Now, some of the advantages of the fibers is that, the, is that they consume less memory than threads. So you're not creating a thread. They're more a more lightweight implementation. They kind of remind me of Elixir. They have things they call processes, which are a not an operating system process, but they're small, little, lightweight implementations. That kind of reminds me of that. Yeah. So the next point, bullet. Uh, so they can be paused and resumed by the programmer. So you have control as opposed to the operating system, threat operating systems, thread scheduler. Now, because of this, there's less context switching, say between cores, um, because at any time, oops, sorry here. Here, I'll fix you. <laughs> you fix me, thank you. So at any time, threads can be interrupted by the, like I said, the OS thread scheduler and transferred to another core, for example, or it runs another process. And therein lies the problem with race conditions when doing multi-threaded programming is that, say you have thread A and thread B, in thread A you say, okay, read this value, and then I want you to write and update it to increment it by one. Well, say you've read it, and now suddenly the thread scheduler says, okay, time for thread B to run, and it never wrote anything. And then thread B says, okay, read this value and I'm gonna write plus one to it. And it writes plus one or, or write something else to that value. And then you go back to the thread schedule. Okay, um, thread A, you can go ahead and now it's gonna write what it intended to, but it is essentially gonna overwrite what thread B wrote. So it's a race condition essentially. Yeah. And basically fibers, you can you know avoid that kind of situation because you control when things switch. All right. All right, so this is a bunch of code, but like one to 23 is actually the code and then the results are 25 on down. And this is using fibers. And this is from, this is a variation of what Ruby has put out for, hey, here's how you use some fibers. And basically what this code does, the begin and end is just in a console, I can just paste it and it just runs without <laughs> doing things. So you can ignore that. But uh, line two, it just says, start the program. So you'll see the output below of that. And then it creates on line four, it, you're, we're creating a fiber and we're putting this work into the fiber, but nothing gets run yet because, and then it sleeps for one second on line 13, and then you'll see puts two. So that's the second line that's put out. Nothing from the fibers put out. So you can see in the output on line 26, that's two. And it what it's said is resume the fiber the first time. And you can see that the seconds have gone from 27 to 28. So essentially the only thing that's actually run in the main thread is the, um, or processed is line 13 sleeping for a second and then 14 putting that out. Line 15 resumes the fiber, but in this case, it's essentially starts it. So now you can see it entered the fiber, slept one second, and then it's gonna to yield to back to the main. So the fiber yield means it's going to stop processing that fiber control passes back to you know the main main line and then it says okay resume fiber the second time 
it'll resume it. And now we'll go back, continue running from that yield point within the fiber. And you could have multiple yields, as many as you want to within the fiber to bounce around and kind of do what you need to do and give yield control back to the the main line processing as, as you were. One of the things I really like about this is the fact that dot resume is is also start. So you don't have to do a bunch of, hey, is this already running? Is it paused? Should I resume it or should I start it? And all that crap. So that this is a lot better than normal thread programming in most languages. Yeah, so yeah, so it's again, it's pretty easy to use and you can kind of have been doing this since Ruby 1.9. But the significance is what came with Ruby 3. So if you go to the next slide. So basically they introduced a fiber scheduler. So it's a way of doing an implementation where as long as you follow a standard, you, you can build a scheduler to schedule fibers together. And this gets really interesting when you start doing fibers for um, using it for non-blocking IO. Because like we talked about in the Ractor presentation from a couple of weeks ago, a lot of, you can get a lot of concurrency benefits just by doing other things while things are waiting for IO. So when you're waiting for a file to download or you're writing to a file or you're writing to disk or reading from disk or accessing a service, you can, well, a lot of people use threads for that. So they put it in a thread to do that work and wait till it comes back. You could do you'd be using fibers instead, or in the future, maybe you could use Ractors. Now there's nothing fancy. There's still only one fiber that can run per thread at one time. Um, if you go to the next point. But kind of how the way it works is that one fiber starts an IO task and can give up control while it's waiting for that IO to be done. And really what you would have to do manually previously of saying, okay, pause here, yield here. Okay, now resume again and yield. Basically the fiber scheduler takes care of handling some of that resuming and yielding of the fibers so that you can coordinate a bunch of fibers to download things in seemingly in parallel or accessing services in parallel, et cetera. So it's kind of the fiber schedule introduced in three that kind of has made this a little bit easier. And probably the easiest way to get started with using async IO is the async gem. And I said, you, know, you can see here, it says, it's the easy button, I would call it. <laughs> I like those. So the async, now the async gem's been around a while, but I think they recently refactored it to start using in Ruby 3 to start using the fiber scheduler. So basically it's an asynchronous IO framework. So a way for you to spin up, like they're purporting, you know, thousands of clients or essentially thousands of fibers per process and Basically, it can do all these IO callbacks, not callbacks, because there are no callbacks, but do all these IO operations seemingly in parallel with one Ruby process. So you don't have to do multi-threaded programming. So if all you have are IO delays, you can simply use this and not worry about multi-threaded programming. So this is pretty easy. 
this is has the async gem record crying async and we're going to be doing net calls of basically sending to google a search so we're sending three searches on line eight ruby rails and async and again this comes from the ruby 3 announcement and i just put some variations in here to kind of make it more explicit and in the async basically you put whatever work you want to do within that block so the async block is going to call Google to get some search results. And then line 11, I'm just saying, all right, put that once you have the query. But of course, you could then parse those search results. You could write to the database. You could do whatever you want to in this async block. It's going to process it in an asynchronous manner. And you get parallel benefits if IO is going on within that asynchronous block. If it has to do actual processing, you're not going to get parallel benefits because only one fiber can run on a thread at a time. But if you are doing IO, you're going to get a lot of benefits through doing this. And then after that async block, I'm just saying print it out immediately for each of these. So in the output on line 17, you could see it immediately outputs that immediate puts call. Because again, the async, it's not waiting for anything. It's just run. Vroom. But then the async block continues to work after this code is run. And then you can see the different results. And you can see it happens in an indeterminate order. It's whenever those connections that were made to Google return the search results, then it ret returns. So you can see the um, last one actually done, the async immediately, the last one that was actually sent is actually the first one to return for whatever reason. Now. With this, do I have that yield? Do I essentially have the ability here? So in the middle of that async, or when I when I pop off that async, can I make it so that, hey, this has to finish before you can continue on here? Um, well, at this point, you could have, and maybe I'm, So let's say I've got this scenario, right? I've got to pop off A, B, and C, right? So A yeah. pops off B and C in the threads or yeah. in the in the fibers. And then A does a few more things, but it gets to a certain point, and I need it to make sure that B and C are done before it goes any further. So do all this stuff, but then pause until these are complete. So because that's something I, I routinely had to do when I was doing thread programming in .NET. Um, you know, yes, I can go do a bunch of stuff, but at a certain point, I have to make sure that these are done so I know what they did to carry on. The answer is, unfortunately for you and others who are interested, I don't know. <laughs> but I know there's a lot of features in the async library. so. I would probably look at the async gen documentation and I can take a look at it. There's a break or whatever, but you know, there's a lot of capabilities they built into it. And I, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if that capability somehow exists. Yeah. Because again, this is just a very simple representation of it. Sure. And I know there are ways to to force that kind of thing with you know weight loops and semaphore files and that kind of stuff, but 
it'd be nice if yeah, they had some built-in way. Yeah, this is just kind of an way. easier way to do an implementation, you know, where you don't have to use threads. Right. So that's pretty much it for, for the fiber presentation. Kind yeah, of what they are. Yeah, it's not and complex. No. Um, again, most of my interest is in the Raptors, given its capabilities. Um, but there's some definite, seemingly some different interest in fibers. And if you're needing to do like parallel IO related tasks, I would probably, like if I have to do some type of parallel IO related task or contacting services in parallel for something, I would probably grab an async gem and see what its capabilities are first versus trying to do something multi-threaded. Yeah. But that's, that's and based upon my research, that's what I'm kind of, that is what I would investigate first. So yeah, chat, if you, uh, if you have any ideas about that question I asked about, can you ensure that these sub-processes have finished in, in separate threads with the async gem or fibers, if there's a standardized way to do that, because I just haven't looked into it, uh, I would be curious to know if you guys have answers or best practices for, for that kind of thing, uh, please put them in the comments. Uh, we do like to learn too. So uh, feel free to do that. All right. So another little bonus content section. Okay, here's something. There is a headline on the GitHub called for the async gem called waiting for results. And it says, quote, like promises, there is the async task module produces results. In order to wait for these results, you must invoke async task wait. So it looks like there's the capability where you can introduce a wait at some point in your code. Like Perfect. for example, if you go back for a second. Yeah, so the implementation would be, you would actually, set a variable for like line nine, maybe. Or maybe before that says task equals async do. And then below you could put task.wait. And it'll wait for those to be complete is my understanding how it works. That sounds like exactly what I was looking for. Oh, but then they have... Uh, Talking about semaphore, wait, waiting for multiple tasks, but I don't know if they're part of separate. So they are invoking the use of barriers and semaphores. So definitely look over the, yeah. if you're, before you use it, of course, look over the documentation for the gem. Yeah, for sure. But it does a lot of stuff for you. Cool. All right. So, and like I mentioned, as part of my consulting, um, had a client who has, was tracking, and basically there's a lot of IP addresses they needed to keep track of and know if 
a certain IP address exists within a, a big set or a big list. And usually when dealing with collections of things in Ruby, I typically use arrays or hashes. And hashes are, you can think of as like indexes or lists, maybe in other programming language, basically key values, pairs or whatnot. And I was looking at, and I was just thinking, you know, I wonder when we're talking about thousands and thousands of values, because there were, I don't know if it's 30,000, 20,000, you know, some crazy number of values, are arrays the best thing, you know, because I normally don't question it because my arrays are not usually that big. Right. Searching but through a five-member array is not a big deal. Yeah. So this one was like, is there something that, you know, so I started Googling, did a lot of researching, not a lot of researching, but, you know, searching to say, hey, what are our alternatives? And there's actually something called Ruby sets, which I haven't really used. So it's basically like an array. It's just a set of values and you can put, you know, text in it or integers, or, you know, whatever. The thing that makes them different than arrays is that they are unique. So automatically they're unique because the, so they're kind of, you can think of them kind of like they're key based. So they're unique. And then the other property they have is that they're unordered. So like, and I don't think it's, I, I don't believe there's a guarantee to promise the order. So it's basically, they're just unordered. So it's, again, it's more like a key value storage type thing, but essentially it's only keys. And it gives, compared to an array, it gives O1 performance versus ON. So what that means is that almost no matter the size of the set, returning the value or checking for its existence doesn't vary that much based upon how many members are in the set, whereas the performance for arrays is dependent upon the size because it's essentially scanning through them. So, and this is a little implementation to look at performance differences between arrays and sets. So like line one, you have to require set in order to use it. And in line three, I'm saying, all right, I'm gonna create a new set. That's how you create, I could do array new instead of the brackets for line four. And I did a query for like, I don't know if it was 30,000, basically a lot of different, essentially IP addresses, stick them in the, set or stick it in the, the array, same type of operators used. And this performance wasn't measured. I just said, just run it and just stick them all in there. And then the benchmark was say, said, okay, I'm gonna look for an IP address, in this case, X that exists. So does the IP set, like on line 13, um, after the report part, does the IP set include the I X and X was included or why it wasn't there? So, and you knew ahead of there. time for this test that X was included and Y was not. Oh, yeah. Cause I, I ran it to test beforehand that X was included and Y wasn't included. Yes. Right. And then go ahead and ran them for the sets and the rays, and the results oh, are whoops. down here. And look at what I tend to look at is the real time, because that's the real clock time. And as you could see, checking if something was there was a hundred times faster in a set versus an array. And it was 250 times faster if it was absent. That's a little bit. And I didn't do, I Jeez. probably could have 
done another cool thing and said, okay, well, what is it like for a hundred um, member array versus a set? And what I think you see, you will see is that because of that O1 versus ON, you'll see the arrays, it will vary based upon the size of the array, and then it maybe won't vary as much with the set. Yeah, so there's a certain a certain number where there's a tipping point where sets will make a significant difference over arrays, but before that tipping right, point. So small, right, so small things, sets are, um, it, it doesn't make any sense to use them, but once you're talking maybe high hundreds, thousands, then you're going to see, you know, change in performance differences such as this if you're using a set. Now, are there any downsides to using sets instead of arrays? If you care about my understanding, I didn't test this or, or whatever, because this particular use case is, Speed was the IP address there or not? So right. you know, but my understanding is that they're unordered. So if order is important to you, like if you're doing a first in first out queue or things like that, you can't really use a set for that. Is my understanding? And because um, it acts more like a thing? database, an RDBMS, where it just puts the records wherever and kind of yeah pulls and, them out and however is the hash is the i think hashes is the same way it's like key order has no meaning right i believe so yeah there's no i think you yeah, can so make if, a hash ordered there are ways to do that but you, and if you need duplicates in the the array it, it doesn't work either so it's only unique okay. so again they're kind of like you can think of of them as key based arrays type thing so as long as you don't need duplicates and you don't need order, you can use sets. Wow, that is a huge performance difference. And again, it's kind of like they're only keys. So in terms of storing complex data, you know, you can store an array of objects. I don't right. It wouldn't make sense, and I don't think you can store objects within a set okay type thing because again it's it's they're just kind of like keys which so you would think but you you know you can store string you can store primitive primitives but a complex object i don't think that would work but if you're if you're in the realm of of numbers where sets become beneficial anyway you're probably not wanting to instantiate all those objects to store True. So, I, yeah, I can't see you wanting to store objects in a set. I, I don't typically want to store objects in arrays either, unless it's just a couple. Yeah. I'm usually, because then I have to, not only do I have to pull the information from the database, but I have to instantiate them, which takes a lot of time. And when you start putting those things inside loops, then you get massive latency problems, and it's just nasty. So I, I try to avoid instantiating objects as much as possible. Well, in most languages, but particularly in root, if I can help it. And the other interesting thing is that, to, to go along with this, is one way that we're 
potentially looking at storing something like this is within Redis. And Redis, of course, can store strings, and it can also store lists. And I would say those are more equivalent to an array, but Redis also stores sets, and they're the same type of thing. They have essentially that O1, that constant time performance for bookups. They are unordered, and I think they are unique. So essentially, they're similar implementation to Ruby. So if you have Redis, use Redis, familiar with it, these give you the same benefit. So if you want to store something in Redis, you could use sets for that too. Nice. All right. So that was kind of an abbreviated presentation for this week, but that's what I got. <laughs> oh, no, that's fine. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's good stuff. I didn't, I've never used sets before. I've heard that they were out there, but I never really paid attention to them because as you said, normally with arrays, you're not dealing with thousands of things a lot of times, but, but I have and never really paid attention because it never became a, a speed issue in those cases for me, but that's good to know about. I'm I'm actually more excited about the bonus content tonight than, than the main main course. But <laughs> well, like you said, you know, how does this help me? And again, if you already have, like you said, you have Sidekick to do stuff in parallel, right? And they kind of put the threading implementation behind the scenes, yeah, behind an easy button. So <laughs> as I as I would say. Uh, so, you know, fibers are kind of, if you want to get down into the weeds or implement your own gems for doing things, making them easier. Right. Um, or the async gem, if you want to do a few things. But again, you could always use, uh, you know, sidekick and processing multiple jobs in parallel if you want to do that kind of stuff. Well, awesome. All right. I feel smarter already. This was a good night. All right, hope you guys enjoyed that. If you did and you want to help out the channel, please mash that like button and consider subscribing so that you know when we go live every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. You'll get a reminder if you choose to get reminders on YouTube. Um, just mash all the buttons and ding all the bells. Also, you can find our podcast version of this anywhere that podcasts live. You can also join us on our website at uh, rubberduckdevshow.com where you can find all of our videos all of our podcasts and you can sign up for our newsletter you can follow us on twitter at duckydevshow uh, where we will make announcements for various things once in a while um, let's see what else uh, oh if you have ideas for the show if you have topics that you'd like to see please put them in the comments below because uh, we want to cover topics that you guys want to hear so if there's something you want to hear please uh please let us know um also i've been reaching out to try to get some guests on the show working on that trying to work schedules out so we will should be having some guests pretty soon we haven't picked a topic for next week yet because it's just been one of those weeks um so if you want to know what's coming up isn't it one of those weeks <laughs> right it's it's always one of those weeks um but if you want to know what's coming up, uh, follow us on Twitter, and I will try to 
um, make sure to announce that as soon as we decide it. Um, anyway, I had a lot of fun tonight. I hope you guys did too. Um, we will see you next Wednesday night at 8 p.m. And until then, happy programming. Happy programming. <laughs>